Please find page 1235. I'm glad I've got the church in Philadelphia. It is the only church of the seven that has no words of condemnation. So if you think you can sit back and feel good tonight, think again. But uh, it has no word of condemnation, so I'm delighted to have it. I'm also delighted to have it because I do like the name Philadelphia. It's a lovely name. It flows well. Mellifluous, I think is the word. Uh, There is an area in uh, Sheffield called Philadelphia. Why it's called Philadelphia, I have no idea. No doubt you'll tell me. Somebody will tell me afterwards. Uh, I see our ministry team are preaching next week in one of the churches in Philadelphia. And there's a very large church in Philadelphia whom we wish well But this is the church in Philadelphia, which means brotherly love. Lovely name. I don't know about you, whether you like names that sound good. My mother always complained when she married and had to become a hacking. She was called before she got married Durham. She thought Durham was a rather nice, uh, you know, university kind of name. And she felt she'd rather let the side down when she became a hacking. You may consult Margaret afterwards to find out what she thought about what, she, what happened when she became a hacking, if you like. But I, I do like names. I have a, a, a cricket book amongst my many cricket books written by a, a cricket professional of many years ago. And one of the things he likes to do, he likes to pick uh, ne- cricket teams of all sorts. Do you realise Do you realize what a thing in our day there was? They actually did play in the 19th century. They had a game, smokers versus non-smokers. Can you imagine? That did happen. Uh, the smokers didn't play in pipes, I think, but they were allowed to do that in those days. Well, this gentleman liked to pick, this cricket man, liked to pick two teams of nice-sounding names and ugly names. And it's interesting, I've got to be careful here, I suppose, but be very careful. But the captain of the nice-sounding names was Lionel C.H. Pallaret, spelt P-A-L-A-R-R-E-T, of Somerset. I mean, that's a lovely name. Who was the captain of the ugly names? Frank Sugg of Lancashire. Now, there you are. You probably agree that if you're a Frank... Any Suggs here tonight, I'm sure you're a lovely person. But the name is not exactly mellifluous. Now, why do I mention that apart from waking you up? Why do I mention that at the beginning? Because actually, Philadelphia got a new name. They gave them a new name. For a short period, it was called Neo-Caesarea. It was given a politically correct name by the Roman Emperor, and uh, it didn't stick. Right, like the name when they changed lots of our pubs into nice old names like the Royal Oak, into the Winking Frog and all sorts of peculiar names that they did. And they've all reverted, I'm glad to say, to the Royal Oak, uh, or whatever they were before. Uh, and neo Caesar never stuck. It was a new name they didn't want. Have you spotted in the text? There's going to be a new name here in verse 12. The name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem. Philadelphia would one day get a name that would last forever. But Philadelphia will do. It's a brotherly love name. If you're here this morning, uh, Paul was reminding us of the challenge about brotherly love when we're living and seeking to be a witness in the world. Good to have a good name. More important to live out the name. Philadelphia was on an important trade route. It was a very important cultural center. It was called Little Athens. And the job was to spread Greek culture around, which is not an unimportant thing. As some of you know, my wife and I and family spent 10 years in Edinburgh, which prides itself on being called the Athens of the North. You might find out why they think they're the Athens of the North. But there was a sense in which Philadelphia was used to sort of spreading out with culture. Now, there's been a danger down the history of the world that sometimes we've spread the Christian message and we've linked it with Western culture and it's not always gone very well. 
Remember our trip to India some years ago, preaching in Madras Cathedral, when the, all the little choir boys had to wear cassocks and surplus, boiling hot weather, and there they were, all dressed up like little English choir boys, and we chanted psalms. Now, I quite like chanting psalms. It's a thing that's gone, I'm afraid. Well, I'm afraid it's gone, but uh, we chanted psalms, and it was all terribly artificial. And then suddenly, in the middle of the service, they sang Indian songs to Indian rhythms. The whole thing came alive. You see, we'd forgotten. You don't have to sing chant psalms to be good Christians. You want to demonstrate it in the world in which you live. So, spreading culture is not what we're about. It's spreading the gospel that we're about. And different cultures must express it differently. Now, the key thing about Philadelphia is the picture of the open door. You've got that, haven't you? That picture of the open door. And that's why you read the passage in Isaiah, which we'll refer to in a moment. There in verse 8, the open door that nobody could shut. Philadelphia is a door open of opportunity. They could be a culture centre. They could be a gospel centre. But it was also, uh, an open door works both ways. And what goes out allows things to come in. I recollect meeting somebody who'd been in ministry in Albania in the day when Albania became open to the gospel. And for months they thought it was wonderful. The gospel was flooding Albania. Things could happen. And then, of course, very quickly, it wasn't just the gospel that flooded Albania. It was all kinds of sects and pornography and all the other things that we send in from the West. And the revival wasn't quite as great as they'd hoped. So here was a door of not only of opportunity, but for a door for the opposition to come in. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 9 that he's in Ephesus and I'm staying here because a great door for the gospel is open and there are many who oppose me. So I'm staying. Some of you may remember when Patrick Suckdale came here some months ago and I received literature now because I'm concerned and you read this, you read the stuff of the Barnabas Society, Barnabas Aid. Some of the suffering places in the world, Christians in Pakistan being told they have to leave or convert to Islam or they will face death. And some inevitably do leave, you can't blame them. Others prayerfully stick it out. Well, Paul, in a slightly lesser way, said that there's opposition, there's an enemy, the doors open both ways, so I'm staying. And the lovely thing about the church in Philadelphia, do you see about it in verse 8? You have little strength. Nothing great here. Weren't a great crowd. Weren't a big number. Weren't anything stupendous. They had little strength, but they stood. Now, not least, Philadelphia was a, a city famous or infamous for being on the fault line of earthquakes. Listen to this word. Here's a, a, a comment by a person of the day, of this day, when this was written. Talking about Philadelphia, its very walls are unreliable but daily in one way or another, heave and fall apart. Would you like to be living there? Its walls are unreliable, but daily in one way or another, heave and fall apart. In AD 17, there was a very famous uh, earthquake. Well, I, I call it famous. I've never heard of it before, but I was checking my facts. There was a famous earthquake. And uh, Philadelphia and Sardis, what you think about last week, both fell victims to the same earthquake. I wonder if you get a message. We still, in the world of today, are at the mercy of the elements, as many people in this city of Sheffield know. I'm sure many of you have been having phone calls from all over the, the country and all over the world to see if you're safe. Somebody saw 
people being winched up on a, a helicopter and we're checking with my wife who was one of those who was winched off the top of a flat, flat into a helicopter we assured them we didn't have that problem my son decided to ring up saying I know you're alright Dad I wasn't bothered about you but I just saw the picture of Sheffield Wednesday underwater I had to sort of commiserate with you <laughs> These are the important issues. Well, we're living in an age when uh, the tempest, flood, so on, are still powerful. Now, did you notice in verse 17, uh, verse 12, sorry, of this passage, what he's talking about? Him who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, pillars didn't last long in the temples in Philadelphia. When the walls were heaving and falling apart, they very soon went. They were the victims of earthquake. Did you ever know that we are famous as a church for being the church with the see-through pillars? Did you know that? One day, I, in my day when I minister here, I was in church, and a gentleman, a very distinguished gentleman came, and he said, Oh, I've come to see your famous church. I've heard so much about it, and I was sort of preening myself, thought it was all to do with the great preaching we have here, and uh, what wonderful... Yeah. I said, yes, yes. Oh, so I've come up from London. Oh, I said, have you really? I'm very impressed by all this. I've got an architectural book, and it talks about your church as being a church with see-through pillars. I'd like to have a look at them. Well, I've been disappointed. All the, we've, all the minister here, we are the church with the see-through pillars. Well, I'm glad we are, because I can... It is quite good, because I can make sure the South Isle don't go to sleep. It's rather nice. Uh, the see-through... And the North Isle, of course. But you see, the pillars in Philadelphia were liable to crumble. And the message of this church, Philadelphia, is that they would have a pillar that never went. He was offering them security. Did you notice that in the Old Testament reading, Isaiah 22, don't need to look at it now, but you remember, that's the passage from which we get the bit about the key of David and the opening and no one can shutting. And who was it talking about there? There were two characters. One was called Shebna, and the other was called Eliakim. We know very little about either of them, but we know how they typify the world of today. Shebna was the pillar of society, which is the title uh, that Paul gave me for tonight. The pillar of society. He was. He was a man of distinction. He was making sure he had his funeral planned. He had his grave planned. He was making sure his name would not be forgotten. And what did God say to him through the prophet? I'll toss you like somebody throws a ball. I love that uh, cricketing analogy there in the Old Testament. I will throw you like a man hurls a ball. And Eliakim, who will take his place? He will drive him like a peg into a firm place. And all will be well. And he will have the key that nobody can shut and open the door. And all can enter. Do you see? Shebna thought his security was being famous, being one of the top men, having his name written in the important corridors of power. But he's recognized that God can throw people away like a ball. Where is your security? Sometimes I do think God allows things like floods, and we do prayerfully remember our, our friends on the other side of the city, and those who are ministering to them in every kind of way, they deserve our prayers and our care and our love and where we can, our gifts. Uh, but these things come to us just to remind us we are not master of our fate. God does speak to us. I shall never forget. I mentioned it before from this pulpit, but I want to mention it again. I shall never forget the day when uh, I was due to preach here at the beginning of a 
new year or the end of an old year and I was preaching on the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and I got it all planned up and I'd gone for, we'd gone for a Christmas holiday to our family down in Essex. All planned. And I woke up Boxing Day morning. I have a habit of waking up to the news to get me awake and the news on Boxing Day that year was the tsunami. And all that, that terrible, terrible thing happened. And I thought, Here's a strange thing, isn't it? My first thought was not for all these poor people, but dear me, I've got, to, I've got to change my sermon. I've got to say something about the tsunami. I can't possibly preach. And I remember prayerfully that day, looking at the text I was going to preach on in Jeremiah 31, and I'd never come across these words before in that same chapter. So I didn't have to change it all. This is what Jeremiah says in chapter 31, verse 35. This is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. Tsunami in Jeremiah 31. And I said, there you are, God is speaking through it. And some of you may remember that I preached that sermon still on New, new Covenant, but saying that the God who offers something new is a solemn God who reminds us that he is in charge and we are wise not to assume that our security lies in our own plans. He can make the waves roar in all kinds of ways. Some of us just now are going through days of testing like the church in Philadelphia. So very briefly, three doors here. It's a lot about doors. Next week you've got Jesus standing at the door and knocking in Laodicea. But here's the other idea of the door. The door of opportunity, the door for the opposition, and the door into security. The door of opportunity. Here's the door held open. Jesus said, I am the door in John chapter 10. Whoever enters in, he'll be saved and come in and out and find pasture. So Jesus offers us a door, a door through which we must go. He holds it open. And when God opens the door, nobody can shut it. I once was privileged to uh, do the Bible readings at a conference of students when Brother Andrew, who opened doors, that's the obvious man, Brother Andrew opened doors, was the main speaker. I was doing the Bible reading. I always remember... Brother Andrew's comment, there is no country in the world, talking to students, where you cannot enter. There are many countries you'll never get out again once you've got in, but that's a different matter. There is no country you can never enter. There always are open doors, and some, like this church in Philadelphia, have vast open doors, and this church represented here tonight, this congregation, represents loads of open doors. And the Lord holds it. Would you also notice... He holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Does that ring a bell? Do you remember a moment when Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 said to Peter, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Please, many of us know what those words do not mean. No, sadly they've been sort of all misused. It's got nothing to do with Rome and the Pope and the Bishop of Rome. All sorts of odd things. There's no suggestion that Jesus is suggesting that the, the Bishop of Rome has authority, special authority to open the kingdom of heaven. Mind you, just, just let me say one word of praise for the Roman Catholic Church. They sometimes speak up with greater confidence than my beloved Church of England when it comes to issues of, of, of ethics and sexuality. 
The way they speak out against the Abortion Act shows a courage which we do not seem to have. Nonetheless, uh, this idea that the keys of the kingdom are to do with the Roman Catholic Church is, of course, not true. What it is true, how did Peter open the kingdom of heaven to all believers? When were these words fulfilled? When on the day of Pentecost he preached the gospel, and what he preached would have the effect on some entering and some being shut out. It was a matter of life and death. It was a gospel ministry. And the door that's held open for us is an opportunity to take the gospel out and we still have an open door. It's getting shut. We're having more difficulties. Please pray for folks like the Christian Institute battling to keep our rights to get the gospel out. But there is an open door. Open the door held open by Jesus. But then there's a door entered. You see, it's one thing to have a door that's open. I've placed before you an open door, verse 8. You've got little strength, yet you've kept my word. You've not denied my name. There are two phrases we often use about evangelism. We talk about building bridges. Now, you know what that means, don't you? I'm fairly good at building bridges. That is, getting to know people, chatting about this, that and the other, meeting them in their homes, talking to people around the place. But then comes a moment... How do, when are you going to cross that bridge? No point in building a bridge if you never cross it. Now, knowing my Fullwood congregation, I guess there aren't too many of us here who burst into people and ask them, are they saved? Most of us are very careful about who you engage with the gospel. But sometimes we can be too careful. We're so busy building bridges, we never cross them. And the other phrase, it's a very popular phrase today, the church must be a mission-shaped church. So it's a phrase always been banded around. Now, what do they mean by a mission-shaped church? Well, they mean, for example, that you know, the way we meet, the places we meet are friendly to non-Christians. So there are lots of churches, smaller churches these days, that meet on a Sunday evening, round tables, like a cafe, and you suck your tea and coffee while you listen to the message. Um, I have no problem with that. We'd have a problem doing it here, wouldn't we? But I, I really have no problem with the whole idea of having flexibility. But what's the point of a mission-shaped church unless you pour the gospel into the shape? What's the point in building a bridge of contact if I never, ever cross the bridge? If I, all I am is a nice guy? I always remember when I was chaplain at Lodgemore Hospital, uh, one per- person commented about me, it came back to me, and I felt very humbled that I was a nice guy because I never talked about religion. I thought, oh dear, that's a good, that's a good testimony to my honest character. So I started talking about religion. Anyway, uh, but it's, it's important if we build bridges, we should cross them. If we have mission-shaped churches, we put mission into it. Just note, will you, how did they go through the open door? Verse 8, you've kept my word, you've not denied my name. What a testimony. Would that be a testimony of this church? I hope so. Would it be a testimony of you? Would it be a testimony of my beloved Church of England? All too rarely, I'm afraid. Not denied my name, standing firm on the uniqueness of Christ, refusing to compromise on his position, kept my name, kept my word, not denied scripture. Well, all that. We shall never go through the open door unless we have that kind of courage. When you pick up your church family news, I hope you all pick one up. There's a, a wedding photograph on the front, Mr. David Todd and his young wife, uh, on the front page, it just reminds me that when I, I had my various wedding texts, I, had, I, think, I think I had six wedding texts, and I did them in rotation, so it depended 
One person complained that I use the same wedding text for all their daughters. Never mind, I, I didn't keep a record of all my wedding texts. But I had half a dozen. And one of my wedding texts was a, a link with Philippians 4, John 15. John 15 says, without me you can do nothing. Philippians 4 says, I can do all things in Christ. Maybe I said that at your wedding. Without me nothing, all things in Christ. And the challenge as we go through that open door of opportunity, we cannot do it in our strength, but he holds the door open and we can do all things in Christ. The door held open. Secondly, the door the door of opportunity, the door held open, the door entered. Now the door for opposition. You see the testing that will come, the testing in Satan's hand. The door is opened and those, verse 9, those who are the synagogue of Satan, I will make them come down and fall at your feet. Who are these? They're also mentioned in chapter 2 and verse 8, 20, uh, in Revelation 2 verse 9, in the story of Smyrna, where dear Polycarp, eight-year-old bishop, was martyred. Now, please, you cannot accuse Paul of anti-Semitism. That would be nonsense, wouldn't it? Paul was a Jew of Jews. But when he sees his own people by race, not only denying the gospel, but being the opposition to the gospel, he doesn't pull any punches. He's every right. And Jesus said things just as stern. These people were Jews by race, but they had forfeited the right because they were attacking the very gospel and the opposition to Philadelphia came. Where from? Not the pagan hordes out there, but the Jewish community in there. And the Bible's full of the great danger we face when a religion without the gospel doesn't like the gospel. You will have more opposition from religion than from anywhere else. Richard Dawkins, in his book, Attacking... Uh, the Christian faith attacks religion and I read what he says about religion I agree with him all the way what he says about religion I agree religion does a great deal of harm and it was a religious opposition that was attacking Philadelphia if you read on in Revelation you'll find in chapter 13 that the dragon who is Satan has two beasts that support him one is a grim beast totalitarian political rule. The other is a, a beast who speaks like a lamb. And that's totalitarian religion. And those two things together work for Satan. And so this, it was in Satan's hand was the testing. But we notice too, secondly, the testing was in God's sovereign hand. Please note the word in verse 10. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial. Please note the preposition from. In the Greek, there are two words from. One means stop you going to it. The other means keep you through it. And it's the second. It means, it doesn't mean I won't allow the testing to come, but I will take you through it and you'll come out the other side. Let me just read some words, if I may, from Isaiah, very relevant to our flood-torn nation at the moment. Hear these words of Isaiah 43, verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they'll not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. In a few weeks' time, we're going to start a series here in the morning on Daniel. 
Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego? Were they saved from going to the furnace? No. God allowed them to go in the furnace. And in the furnace they met one like the Son of God. Daniel, was he preserved from going into the lion's den? No. But he was kept in the lion's den. And the challenge, the great challenge to us is to hold fast. That's the word. Verse 11, hold on, hold fast. Because the trial is coming. The testing days are coming. Friends, I've been a a pastor long enough to know that I've preached to some tonight who behind the face that I see are all kinds of trials that I do not know. Tests that you and I face in our own lives, in our own futures. And when I, we stop and listen to the news this morning, I woke up to the news and everything seemed to make me feel grim. What a sad world we live in. And so the testing is coming. And there's no way in which Christians can say, I shan't be allowed to go into it. But I have every promise that I'll be brought through it. And brought through it refined. Daniel was a better man having been in the lion's den. And Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were better people having proved God in the fire. The door of opportunity. The door for opposition in certain hands in God's sovereign hand. Finally, the door into security. Not shaken. That's the great promise, isn't it? The pillar will be safe. There will be earthquakes, but they will stand firm. Not shaken. The Bible says we are in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Would you please note, the promise is not to everybody in the church of Philadelphia. Verse 12, him who overcomes. All these letters come to the church, but they speak to the individual within the church. And within every church, there is the church of genuine believers who overcome. And to him who overcomes, there is the promise that he will not be shaken. Tell me, what is it that makes you fear for the future? Or, I'll pick the other way around, where do you place your security for the future. In, 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 in view of all that's happening in our nation, the fear of terrorism, in view of what's happening in the world, uh, the dangers of militant Islam, what, where is your security? In the book of Amos, there's that very vivid picture about the community of Amos's day who thought their security was in the fact they had a kind of, they were Jewish, they were God's people. They were all right. And Amos said, you shouldn't desire the day of the Lord. It'll be darkness and not light. And then that vivid picture. A man running away from a lion and a bear met him. And he escapes the bear, puts his hand on the wall and the snake bit him. Poor old boy. It does seem unfair, doesn't it? He ducks the lion, he evades the bear, and then he, he leans on the wall and gets bitten by a snake. But the message is clear. He's saying to these people, look, in midst of all the problems in the world around you, Are you putting your confidence in something that ultimately will bite you? People's security in the fact of their pension, their family, the fact they belong to this country with all its peace and order and justice in the past. Maybe they're going to be taken away from us. And the challenge then comes, have we got a kingdom that will not be shaken, a pillar that is firm? Not shaken and finally not transitory. That's the new name. Neo Caesar didn't last, but this new name will. You see the new name? It comes there in uh, verse 12. It's the name of my God. It's the name of the city of my God. It's my new name. God's name. Jerusalem's name. 
Jesus' name, that's where our security lies, belonging to these people of God. Before I preach again in Fullwood, I shall have been to and come back from the Keswick Convention. Now, Fullwood is, is, is a lot of people who have been to the Keswick Convention. I, I, we often bump into Fullwood people at the Keswick Convention. Uh, let me just say that if you've never been to the Keswick Convention, it is possible to get to heaven without having been to the Keswick Convention. But the pathway to heaven is much brighter if you come that way. So we'd love to see you at Keswick. But I shall have been to Keswick and I can be back again. And uh, because I'm no longer involved in the Keswick Convention uh, officially, I just get the odd bits and pieces to do uh, when somebody else can't do them. And I've got the real odd bits and pieces because of a, a seminar uh, in the second week and it's on, the whole theme is outrageous grace. And it's all about grace through the various uh, times of life. Uh, taken by Clive and Ruth Calver. Clive Calver was uh, EA, Evangelical Alliance General Secretary now in America. Uh, runs various uh, caring groups in America. A great character. But Clive and Ruth are doing the seminars on children, teenagers, middle years. But you see, they aren't old enough to cope with the old age lot. So who gets the job? Hacking gets the job. It does talk about grace in the third age. Aren't we funny? The third age. Why don't they say old age and let's be straightforward. Anyway, I'm dealing with grace in the third age. So I had to send a little blurb to go in the program. I won't quote the blurb to you. But this is what it amounts to. What is the danger in third age, old age? I'm telling you all this because you'll all be out there one day if you live long enough. What are the dangers? Well, there are two dangers. One danger is that you think when you get older, the days of real temptation and testings are gone. Don't kid yourself. They're still there, very real. And the other thing, just possible that if you've been a Christian a long time, you begin to have this mentality which says, ah, I'm okay now. Surely God will say he's done well. He really has worked hard. So, brownie points galore. He'll be all right. No, you're all dependent on grace all your life. Do you know what the great cry was at the Reformation? The great cry at the Reformation. In Christ alone, through grace alone, by faith alone. God give us grace to keep to all those. And it is still true when you're in the third age. And this is where your security lies. Thank God for the church at Philadelphia. May we ever be like it. And may we be those who go through that door. Stand firm when the opposition comes through that door. And trust him to have our security in Christ alone. And the preacher's allowed to choose the last hymn. And though we've often sung in Christ alone, I insisted we sang it tonight. And when I've prayed, we're going to do just that. Let's just pray first of all, then we'll sing. Father, I want to thank you that that church in Philadelphia kept true, didn't deny your name, was true to your word, that they went through the door, that door which nobody else could shut because you'd opened. Lord, help us to learn from them. Uh, we have little strength, we're like them, really. But give us grace to be faithful, to have our security firmly placed. And in these days when all around us seems to be shuddering, we don't know where we are, thank you that our security is in Christ alone. In Jesus' name, Amen.